Welcome to Bit Splitting with Daniel Jalkut. My guest this time is Jean McDonald, the founder of AppCamp for Girls and a partner at Smile Software. Today's show is sponsored by Igloo, an intranet you will actually like. Welcome back to Bit Splitting. I am very happy to have as my guest this time around Gene McDonald. Gene is the founder of App Camp for Girls and a partner with Smile Software, among many, many other things, which I hope to get into here on the show. Welcome to Bit Splitting, Gene. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having me. You know, uh, as you probably know if you've listened to the show, I like to get back into the background of guests, but in this case, I want to take a um, a moment before we start delving into history to touch base with you about something very exciting going on right in, you know not right now as we speak but just last week as we recorded you finished a beta sort of a beta test week of your app camp for girls project yes that's right we um we did a week with um 12 girls and um the idea of App Camp, so, you know, just to back up a little bit, we uh, we want to have a place for girls who are interested in, in doing geeky things and, and app development in particular to come and, and be uh, mentored through the process. So not just, here's a, some code, we're going to learn this, this Objective-C language, but, you know, here's where, where you start out getting ideas, here's how you shape your ideas, here's where design comes in. Um, we, we work in Xcode, then, and then, the, for me, the, the crowning moment is that they should have some kind of app that they've d- designed together on Xcode and have it loaded onto a device that is um, their device. So we, we provide them all iPod touches for the week so that they have, you know, they all have something that they can work on. And uh, last week was the first time we tried this and really didn't know. I told all the parents, you know, I spoke with every parent beforehand saying, look, it really is beta. We've never done anything like this before. This is the idea. I can't promise that at the end of the week they'll have an app that ends up on on an iPod Touch, but that is the goal. I can promise that they will have a lot of fun and and you know be inspired you know in in various geeky ways and uh, and in fact it worked. I mean it was it was super exciting for everybody. I mean for me obviously um, the girls were were so thrilled and the volunteers were too. Um, we had. Uh, quite a few uh, women volunteers helping, you know, to teach the girls the various parts of app development and to coach them through the process. Well, I'm really glad to hear that it went off well. I know you must have been, I'm sure you were confident yet anxious about it. Um, (laughs) uh, And this was, um, this whole program, I should mention, it's a nonprofit organization that you have founded. Um, It's inspired by a program called the Rock and Roll Camp for Girls, which you participated in a few years ago. Um, is that right? Yeah, actually, I, I mean, I started um, being involved with Rock and Roll Camp um, in 2008 when I attended a ladies' rock camp program. So they had like a, a shortened version of the camp for women to uh-huh. come and experience the same thing the girls do. Um, and from that point, I started to go to rock camp pretty regularly, and then I started volunteer 
I teach guitar there now. This will be my fourth summer teaching guitar, and I've coached bands, and I've been on the board there. So I was, I'm still involved with Rock Camp. I'm not on the board anymore. Um, but yes, it was an inspiration. And Rock Camp is something that started in Portland in 2001, I think it was. It was. It's been over 10 years now. Um, and I remember reading about it in the in the Oregonian that these women were doing this thing and they were collecting equipment and they were going to teach girls rock and roll and they were going to play in bands and I thought how in the world would that work you know in one week like you know I play guitar I didn't learn guitar in one week um (laughs) I can't imagine what they're going to do and then you know several years later a friend said hey we should go to ladies rock camp and I I was interested um and so then I got to see exactly how it does work. And um, you you can come into rock camp with no experience and you learn what you can in one week, but you can learn something to play in a band together. And honestly, the simpler the better for rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so punk is a real popular genre, you know, and, and the girls write their own songs and then they perform a show at the end of the week um, in a big, you know, venue here in Portland. And, it does work and so when I had this idea of like what could we do with girls that would make them more likely to to pursue software as an interest and maybe a career you know I try to imagine how it would work with the app the rock camp model because I knew that worked and that did definitely sustain me throughout the whole year of planning because a lot of people thought I was pretty crazy um to to say, okay, we're going to take girls who don't know much or anything about um, app development and have them develop an app in a week. But it it worked, and it worked pretty much the way we had intended. So that was exciting. That's Yeah, that's really exciting. You know, I I went back, um, preparing for this show, I went back and listened to your interview with Brett Terpstra on Systematic. Oh, yeah. And... um, one of the things you you mentioned there about the app or the app camp, or actually no, you were ref, you were reflecting back on the rock and roll camp, and you said, you know, when you were growing up, uh, drums was a boy thing to do, guitar was a boy thing to do, and it sort of took like, kind of jo- you know jostling you out of that mindset to think like, oh, it's so you know, and there are women who do this and they rock, and I can rock. Um, and when you mentioned about the app camp for girls, it's not just like, we're going to teach you objective C it's sort of, um, you know, obviously the parallel, there are many, many parallels to, well, computers are a boy thing. And if computers aren't a boy, boy thing, then certainly programming computers is a boy thing. Um, and it, it struck me that like a lot of what you're trying to do and what probably the rock and roll camp is doing is sort of less um, technical training than kind of cultural training. Kind of saying, like, step mm-hmm. into this culture and f- see how this culture feels on you, kind of. Like, you know, you can be in the culture of, you know, hardcore right. rock and roller or <laughs> hardcore X-coder. Yes. No, I think that's exactly right. Um, that, um, that, you know, like I said, it's it was, uh, you know, I'm dating myself of course but you know i'm of the generation of like joan jett and the runaways they were like the one of the first girl bands um and the the go-go's you know that was really unusual to have a band rock band that 
had strictly had women and even i remember thinking like wow they have women who play the drums like <laughs> right so uh app development i mean as you know if you as i know you know because you've been to the same conferences i've been to you you have to look pretty hard to find the women um involved in it and on both sides of the podium as well um so the uh i think that the you know for girls to see that it's not rocket science you know it's it's something they can do if they're smart enough and you know th- there's a certain self selection that goes along with you know girls who want to spend a week in the summer writing um, right <laughs> iphone apps okay so they're not they're they're already in, you know yeah they're motivated they're not uh, we didn't have to to get them excited about programming per se but um they uh um, they've seen now a whole range of women who do stuff that's tech related. So we have one um, developer who's like the lead developer of our program, Natalie Osten, who's this young woman, super sharp, super engaging. And the girls just thought she, they loved her so much. It was really great by the end of the week, you know, like I was quizzing them constantly because getting feedback, you know, I said, come on, it's beta camp. So let's go sit down and talk about how things are going, you know, and really in detail, I need your feedback. And man, they, they loved working with this, this young, much hipper than me woman (laughs) who, who, uh, who was obviously so excited about um, doing app development and working with the girls and, and the excitement was mutual. Um, but it wasn't just Natalie. I mean, uh, she, she was great. We had, um, some other women for come in as visiting, visiting, you know, counselors. We, it was hard to get like a whole week's time of one developer, more than one developer. Um, but we made do with what we could get, you know, in terms of like one day here or there from, um, other visiting developers but we did have full-time um uh kelly gamont you know who's a blogger and podcaster and tech support specialist and she's a kind of geek you know woman that they also found very inspiring and um a, a rails ruby on rails programmer who's interested in learning app development herself and so she was you know an, an, another uh, um uh, momoka saunders she was another role model for them and uh and Maya Olson, who's from Smile, who does tech support and PR with me at Smile, she spent the whole week. And those three women each had a project team, so they were like project leaders, and and you know it's the equivalent of like a camp counselor. They had their camp groups, and um, a lot of really interesting exchanges and inspiration and bonding went on last week, and that was great. It's really cool. And uh, one of the things that strikes me is, you know, you said these girls are probably, you know, they're, they're more likely to be interested in programming than you take random, you know, some random girls out of a random population. But, um, you know, they're going to learn something about app development. And especially in this era of iOS, you know, um, if you're a programmer, it's, it's like we're finally at that time where you're a programmer who always has um, a computer in your pocket. And mm-hmm. so some of these girls are going to be at school showing off their apps to uh, their friends who maybe weren't the um the most likely people to be pulled into this 
And I think that's kind of like uh, there's something contagious now about app development because you always have your work to show with you. That's true. That's a really good point. Um, and yes, as they will, um, they'll get other girls um, inspired, I'm sure, you know, as the word spreads and they see what we've done and they find out that they don't have to be programmers to be in app camp. You know, they don't already have to be programmers and we don't expect them to become coders in one week. Um, but that they can, there's a lot you can do and learn about and, and see how it works. I think seeing the whole process and how it fits together takes away some of the intimidation factor. Um, I know it's certainly, for me, uh, so uh, my work at Smile, you know, I'm not one of the engineers. That's, those are my partners, Philip and Greg. Um, I, I decided last summer to go to Big Nerd Ranch myself and go mm-hmm. to beginning iOS boot camp. Um, and the preparation for that, because uh, I knew I would be probably the least prepared person, um, which I was, um, I did the entire Big Nerd Ranch course in Objective-C on my own, and I started the iOS programming book before I even got there. Um, but there is that moment in... Um, and I forget which book it's in, but the first iOS program that you write and load onto your device, I had, I went, the moment I did that, it was like Labor Day weekend last summer, I stayed home from a family trip because I was like, I have too much to do to get ready to go to Big Nerd Ranch. And I loaded that. It's just the simplest little, like, two buttons, two text fields, you know, quiz that just keeps circulating. There's not much to it, but I got it on the onto my iPhone, built it, and and it was on the phone, and I was like sort of running around the house with nobody to talk to, (laughs) saying, (laughs) woohoo, I did it, I did it, it's it's an app, and I put it on my phone, and it works, and, you know, once you see one, you know, okay, it's, it's, obviously things get much more complicated going forward, depending on what you do, but I wanted the girls to have that experience that, their apps were on their devices. I, I knew, and in the meantime, you know, talking to lots of people, you know, not just women, but all the programmers I know, I I've heard that from a lot of people. That moment that you first get something onto a device, whether it's an iOS device or a Mac program, you know, and it's running, it's a very exciting, uh, exciting, unforgettable point, you know, in your career as a software developer. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a reason that the whole um phenomenon or, or or i guess just the the, the habit of hello world type programs <laughs> is it's the most boring program you can make but it always feels good when you <laughs> when you're learning something new you know me i've been programming for i guess uh 25 years or something and wow. um you you know i get like a new scripting language that i got to i got to go check out and hello world feels pretty darn good when you get it to happen <laughs> so um uh, Jean, uh, it strikes me that to start something like App Camp for Girls, you have to have, you sort of have to have as a prerequisite this great amount of empathy for the girls you're trying to serve. Um, obviously, some of that probably comes from having been a girl yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I want to ask you to think back to when you were the age that these girls are. How, how old are, th- are they on average? Um, so there's like 12, 13, 14. Um, we had a mix of all three of those. One very mature 11-year-old. Um, but 6th, 7th, 8th graders um, okay. here in the U.S., that's middle school Middle age. school, right. So if, so if you think back to middle school, um, there were no iOS devices. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> y- you know, I don't, I don't know what your interests were at the time. Is there something you can think of going back that it would have been, it just would have been so great if there had been a, a camp for girls for that interest that, you know, maybe you were on the verge of doing something when you were 12 and uh, maybe it was rock and roll back then. Um, <laughs> maybe it was, maybe it was something else. Maybe, you know, is there something that, um, you feel like, is there on some level, is it, on some level is the reason you're doing this to kind of make up for something you feel like, you, you know, when you were a girl, you didn't get, <laughs> you didn't get, um, you know, encouraged enough to do? Well, I mean, definitely in rock and roll, um, when I was, I did play the guitar. I, I started playing the guitar when I was eight years old, but, um, I played a very, you know, sort of the folk, what was popular back then, um, uh, Simon and Garfunkel and James Taylor and uh, this 70s, like, you know, folk rock uh, movement. And I had an acoustic guitar and that's, I never thought of playing an electric guitar. It never even occurred to me. I I thought, well, you have to plug it in. That doesn't seem like a good thing. And nobody, I didn't know anybody besides boys that had an electric guitar, so I wasn't really, inter- you know, interested in uh, getting into that with them. But um, yes, if I had, if some, if there had been rock camp, I would have gotten to rock and roll and electric guitar a lot earlier and not waited, you know, something like. 35 years <laughs> right. to own my first electric guitar, which I love. Um, and uh, I think, you know, there was, there always was like this, this division um, of boys and girls in, in a lot of ways. And I think uh, we don't see as much of it now because some things have really changed a lot. Um, I, I like to remind young women um, like the counselors and at, at app camp that when I went to school, there was no women's basketball team. There was no women's soccer team. There was nothing like that. There was boys had all the sports except for like tennis and field hockey. <laughs> mm-hmm. And nobody thought that girls wanted to do that, including myself, you know? So when title nine was, was, uh, was in- established. So that was the government, the federal rule that you had to spend the same amount of money on girls' sports as you did on boys' sports. Even I thought, like, how are they going to do that? There's not that many girls want to play these sports, you know, basketball. Why would girls want to play basketball? It seems completely crazy to say that now, you know, when we see the popularity of women's basketball and girls' basketball. But, you know, you have to, like, somebody has to say, maybe it feels a little bit... Um, artificial to to do this because we haven't done it before. We haven't had a basketball team, but now we're going to have to have one. Right. Because and you know it's the same thing with app camp and rock and roll camp for girls. Yes, it, it would be nice if we could have these camps for both sexes together. Um, but 
the reality is right now we need to do something that's kind of artificial to start shifting the balance to where, you know, girls and boys play soccer together now. It's no big deal. Um, that we want girls and boys to come to app camp together at some point and uh but right now we need to focus on getting you know building up that that uh population of girls and young women in the field so that it isn't so lopsided um and then i think it will evolve more um you know organically same as things have evolved in other areas where where um uh, the the gender balance was was lopsided, you know, early on in lots of fields, and it's not anymore. In fact, <clears throat> you know, there's fields that women are pretty much beginning to be the majority. That nobody would have believed that, you know, 50 years ago. All right. Well, I want to take a break to thank my sponsor this time. It's an internet in the cloud service called Igloo. Igloo lets you share content quickly with built-in apps for blogging, calendars, file sharing, forums, Twitter-like microblogs, and wikis. Everything is social, so you can comment on any type of content, mention your coworkers, follow content for updates, and use tags to group things around the way you work. You can add on rooms like many Igloos for each of your teams to work in. It's easy. The whole thing is drag-and-drop, features responsive design, and uses beautiful fonts from Typekit. Your Igloo has enterprise-grade security, and you can start using it right away. The best part is it's free to use with up to 10 people, and when your Igloo grows, it's only $12 per person each month. Go to igloosoftware.com split to start building your Igloo. You know, I took a look at this. As listeners know, I am a one-person company, so an intranet service per se is not exactly what I've been thinking I need. But it's a testament to Igloo that I, I made a, uh, you know, a test account here, a free account, because it's free for up to 10 users. And I don't know, I might end up actually using this thing because it's got all this great stuff for collecting thoughts. And, you know, I'm a one-person company right now, but I don't see it staying that way necessarily forever. Even if I want to share with uh, consultants or designers who might be working with me, it looks like Igloo could be a really useful service. Uh, All this stuff in here just makes you feel really comfortable. It's so well designed. Uh, As they said, they use these beautiful fonts from Typekit, responsive design. It feels like a trustworthy place, and uh, that's exactly what you need when you're looking for intranet software. So especially if you are at a company where your intranet could take advantage of all this great, powerful stuff, Give Igloo a try, and it's so easy to sign up. You can even do it, you know, if you're working at a company, even if you're not in charge of the intranet, you can give it a try, and if it works out really well for you, taking a look at it, you can pitch it to your IT department, see if you can uh, take your company in a new direction that will work better for everybody. Once again, the URL is igloosoftware.com slash split, and thank you again, Igloo, for sponsoring the show. Well, Gene, uh, you live in the um, in the Portland. You live in Portland, Oregon proper. Is that right? Yes. And, mm-hmm. and um, I I know that you um, haven't always lived there. You you lived for a while in New York City. Um, you went to school in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, you've also spent some time at Princeton. 
where in I assume you grew up in the U.S. Uh, where did you actually grow up? Um, I grew up in Miami, Florida. Oh, really? Wow, yeah. that's that wouldn't have been my first guess. <laughs> yes, it's quite uh, pretty much uh, the opposite. It's opposite as you can go from Miami to Portland. But um, yeah, my parents were both Floridians. My mother actually was born in Florida as well, and my grandparents moved there like in the twenties. So. It's not, uh, you know, we were a Florida family, um, not like a lot of my friends, their parents moved from New York City, you know, in the 60s and 70s. But not that we're like, I'm just saying we were we we were Florida and Southern, um, you know, going way back. And um, and it never occurred to me to live anywhere else as I was growing up, you know, because that's just like you live where you live. But once I got to college and once I went to Chapel Hill, I knew that Florida was not really my cup of tea. Um, it didn't really suit me. For one thing, I'm extremely fair-skinned, <laughs> and I do not tan well. And I always felt a lot of pressure uh, to go to the beach. And with my girlfriends, we would lay out on the beach, you know, every weekend. And, uh, you know, that's, this is also before sunscreen became popular. Right. So. Um, I'm paying for that now. Um, you know, being in um, North Carolina was great. I loved it there. And um, New Jersey and Princeton is beautiful. Um, and I, I, I went to graduate school there for almost uh, five years. And that um, that was really, you know, uh, a nice place to live. And then I moved to New York City uh, to when I left graduate school and went into uh, getting a, a real job. Um, I worked in New York City for about seven years. Wow. So um, I did a little bit of research on, uh, on your uh, career history and your uh, academic history. And I learned that at one time, your your expectation for where you would end up in life would be as a professor of Russian history. That's correct. <laughs> And in fact, this was uh, in your time at Princeton. You were um, you were careening towards a uh, a PhD <laughs> in Russian history be- before you decided that uh, the academic uh, life was not for you. That's correct. So now, um, oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. <laughs> I'm just going to say. So now you've kind of come from this uh, early early life ambition to teach other people about Russian history. And I've actually, you know, I've noticed, well, obviously now you're teaching girls about software development. Um, You also do, you know, a fair amount of public speaking. Uh, You teach people about the products that your company, Smile Software, makes. Um, Recently at uh, Alt WWDC in San Francisco, you gave a talk about marketing to try to help, you know, teach our peers how to how to promote themselves more effectively. Uh, and then you also spent some time teaching web design to folks. Um, turns out teaching was kind of in your blood, but um, something about the, I guess, the rigor of academic teaching was not was <laughs> not for you. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, I always wanted to be a teacher, Uh, My parents were both public school teachers, and uh, I wanted to be, at the time, I thought maybe I wanted to be an English teacher. That was like my favorite subject in high school. Um, 
and then, but my parents were really um, actually actively discouraging me from doing that, which is interesting. Um, and I'm not sorry that they discouraged me. I understand, you know, they they were seeing what was happening, you know, just bureau- bureaucratically and, and economically with the teaching profession um, that they... I think they just thought you you'll you won't be happy with that career going forward because you're going to want to do more you're going to want to have more say so over what you do and I guess they knew me right. <laughs> so, um so you know sometimes I, I I some sometimes I used to resent the fact that they 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 made me give up my dream but what I realized you know so so then I thought well fine I'll be a college professor I'll like that you know and that'll be different and they they weren't discouraging me from that but that's because they didn't know uh, <laughs> if they had known what I know now about graduate school and the academia they might have discouraged me then as well um and uh the funny thing about Princeton uh, that I didn't realize uh, getting into it, because I was always such a good student and hardworking, but that's it takes more than that to do well in, in academia. Um, I mean, you really have to have a passion for the ideas and want to be really an author, not a teacher. Not that there's anything wrong with being a teacher, but for at Princeton, for example, they actively discouraged us from doing teaching assistant work. Because they wanted us to finish our PhDs fast, you know, five years fast, which is fast, um, and get out there and be, you know, the next stars in the field. (laughs) If you go uh, to graduate school where everybody is famous, you know, in their profession, you know, they definitely want you to, as their students, to live up to that level of, um, you know, um, renown and, and, and work quality of work and I was just not into it enough I really did want to be a teacher (laughs) so I did all these things in graduate school that were you know my advisor disapproved of like being the assistant director of a residence hall (laughs) because I like to work with the students you know and I did teach a semester of Russian history um, at Princeton but and, and actually didn't didn't like it that much I thought it was okay but it didn't um, – I thought nah, – I don't know that I could get that excited about doing this year in and year out. Um, so, um, yeah, so I moved to – I decided to drop out of graduate school after four and a half years. <laughs> and, um, I, and, and I wasn't being encouraged uh, by my advisors. I think they could see I wasn't one of them. And so I uh, – Went, I wanted to work in New York City um, and work in the book publishing industry because that seemed really interesting to me, and it was. Um, and, you know, I don't regret going to graduate school. I never got the PhD, um, but I, um, because I would have always wanted to go, you know, I would always be thinking like, oh, I should have gone to graduate school. Now, I, know, I never think that, you know, because A, I went, and B, I found out it was not really the best choice for me um it's really hard to quit something though when you're used to like doing well you know i mean i had this fabulous fellowship to be you know to to princeton to study russian history and so on paper i was clearly like looked like somebody who would 
become this great scholar of Russian history, but in reality, it was not in my my makeup to be that. And when you're four and a half years in, it can feel like it's kind of like that, uh, you know, sort of like if you're that invested in something, it can be difficult to quote unquote throw out the mm-hmm. the investment. Um, but was so you said you were on a fellowship there. Mm-hmm. Did that did that make the um, did that make it easier for? I mean, did that completely cover your costs, mm-hmm. or were you still sort of like you know draining money being in this process? No, I mean, I don't know why I was so practical, but I had this notion that I didn't want to have any loans to go to graduate school to be a professor of Russian history. You know, like that just seemed like a not a good idea. And I was lucky that I had all the credentials from college, plus I had spent a year in Germany on on a fellowship after I graduated. I had I had great paperwork for, you know, getting um it, you know, being in line to get a fellowship. And back then, um there was this program that just had just gotten started called um by the Mellon Foundation to actively recruit new humanities scholars because they projected that all, this huge cohort of humanities, you know, professors. So, and you know, the, the in languages and history and philosophy, religion, and all those those fields that had started their careers in the '60s and early '70s were going to be getting ready to retire, and there were no. Um, there was a whole period where there were no jobs in those fields, so a lot of people dropped out of PhD programs in the 70s and 80s, and they were worried that there would be nobody to take these jobs when um, this cohort, you know, the old, older guys all retired. And so they gave this fabulous fellowship. They, they, you know, like, it covered everything and some. I mean, <laughs> it's really um, something amazing which they still do uh, the fellowship still exists but the funny thing that's happened or that they didn't project is how our you know economy and our values would have changed over time such that now those guys all retired but their positions were eliminated you know that all these universities are saying oh well why should we have like these big tenured track positions when we can like hire these poor you know, schmoes who have PhDs who need some teaching hours just to make ends meet. And, you know, adjunct professorships became a thing. Like, I I mean, I don't know any of the numbers. I haven't researched it uh, at all. I just, you know, know anecdotally that even from Princeton, it was hard for my, my friends who did get their PhDs to get good jobs. And a lot of them dropped out of the, out of academia anyway you know so Mm -hmm. um but for me i I lucked out i I was like the second year that uh, that the mellon foundation started that program and it covered me for five years so i didn't have um have anything you know like a huge debt to worry about on top of it by the same token though i sometimes wonder you know if i had had to to put some skin in the game would I have made a different decision sooner? Right. Because I didn't have, you know, the people who came with, say, a half fellowship, you know, where they had to cover half their tuition, which was very expensive, um, they they persevered because they, you know, or they quit 
right away. <laughs> right. Um, it was interesting. It was fascinating uh, uh, because, like I said, it, when you're used to like doing things and as long as you work hard, they work out for you. This was my first experience somewhere where I just wasn't cut out for the job. And uh, it's nice that if you're if you're not going to going to end up getting the degree, or even if you had gotten the degree, as you were alluding to, had you come out of that with a huge debt, it wouldn't have been easy to find the the, the right job to pay it back. And mm-hmm. I guess you you ended up going from uh, from Princeton to did you move directly to New York City mm-hmm. after after leaving? And uh, you got involved in the book publishing business, which is famous for his for his lush salaries <laughs> yeah <laughs> it makes it easy for anybody to live in luxury in new york city so <laughs> oh yeah i know i tell people my first job in new york was I, my salary was seventeen thousand dollars a year oh my god yeah and i mean yes it's going back a few years that was 1989 but Still, $17,000 yeah. a year. And that was a good job. The going rate at a lot of most places was like 14 that year. Um, but yeah, it, at least I had just come from graduate school where my fellowship was $7,000 a year. So it wasn't like I had um, grown accustomed to some lush lifestyle. Um, and I lived in Brooklyn Heights when I first for the first few years, which I really liked. Um, and then eventually moved to the village. Um, but I loved working in book publishing. Man, that's a great, um, that was a great experience for me. That's another area, you know, where the e- economics of it have changed. Everything about book publishing has changed dramatically. I mean, uh, since I left in 94, 95. Um, the uh, people were just starting to talk about books on CD-ROM when I was leaving, you know, um, there was no no electronic publishing to speak of outside of certain professional things like law um, journals that you know got circulated to law firms and things like that. But but trade books were not sold any other way besides in a bookstore. You know, in on, on paper in a bookstore, <laughs> and and, um, and it was very uncomputerized. Um, it was it, that was kind of funny when I well you know think back on it it was behind the times and I think again it's because of the famous uh you know low margins of book publishing and the poor pay is also you know extended to the um not spending a lot of money on equipment either right so this um you were working at a at a company that was in in the trade uh Mm -hmm. aspect of of publishing um and were you doing marketing work with them at that at that time too? I was. I mean, it, well, that was a surprise to me. But when I went to New York, when I decided I was going to move to New York, and I wanted knew I wanted to work in book publishing, I did some research about what the jobs were that were available, um, and uh, so I read all the Publishers Weekly in uh, in the library at Princeton, and. I realized that there was this part of the company that dealt with foreign publishers, which is what I wanted to do because I had lived in Germany and I lived in France for a while. And I thought, you know, I wanted to do foreign rights. Um, One of my German professors had a book that was 
launched at the Frankfurt Book Fair one year, and so he came back from that telling us all this Frankfurt Book Fair stuff when I was an undergraduate. And it really made an impression on me, so I had this notion, I want a job where I go to the Frankfurt Book Fair. Um, Uh And so it turns out that job is not being an editorial assistant. (laughs) It's being the foreign rights person. And I... So I went, you know, and applied for jobs in foreign rights um, and found that, um, you know, I got a job and I realized I'm in the marketing department. I had no idea it was a sales job. I don't know what I thought it was. I thought it would be like, you know, having coffee with foreign publishers and talking about books. It, it was it was me pushing the rights, you know, the translation rights of our author's work to publishers in different countries so if I had known what I was getting into I don't think I would apply for that job because <laughs> I didn't think of myself as a salesperson at all but uh yeah so that's uh but did it but did it in fact get you to the Frankfurt it book fair? did it uh, I got to go to the Frankfurt book fair um a couple years in a row actually it was really um super exciting for me that was that was definitely one of those peak moments where you're like, hey, I did the thing that I want. I said I wanted to do, and it's going really well. <laughs> and it's very exciting, and I got to meet lots of famous authors. Um, the publishing company that I worked for uh, at the time, Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux, they, they're like only second only, at the time anyway, second only to Knopf in numbers of Nobel Prize winning authors in their catalog. Plus, wow. like, I mean, all super high quality um, list uh, of authors, and so I got to meet and hang out with a lot of really, really interesting writers. That was definitely one of the big perks of that job. And um, when the year that I went, one year that I went, our our author. Um, Nadine Gordimer had just won the Nobel Prize. It had just been announced um, the day I left for Frankfurt. So we had like a big dinner for her. All of her foreign publishers came together and it was really exciting. She was a very well-known South African writer, woman, and she. it was just such a thrill. Uh, just Everything about that Frankfurt book fair was, was uh, very exciting. Sounds very exciting uh, indeed. So it must have been, um, must have been something that happened. Uh, I know you moved to Portland. I think in part to be closer to your family, mm-hmm. or um, I guess your your sisters, or, or um, was, yes. it, was it more than that at that point? Yeah, uh, both of my sisters and my brother were moving here, um, or they moved here. So they, one of my sisters had started her career. She got an MBA and then she was working for Hewlett Packard um, in uh, Washington. Um, uh, well, Vancouver, Washington. So it's really, you know, just outside of Portland. And uh, my brother and my other sister also moved here. Like we, they, each one came and said, hey, this is pretty cool here. I think I'll stay. <laughs> so, and I was the last one to come. I'm the oldest of the four of us, but I was the last one to get here. But yeah, I think if you, I mean, there's definitely, you know, some personal drama going on for me at the time. Um, and 
New York was just suddenly became like a place that was driving me crazy. And Mm -hmm. my sister was like, you should just come move to Portland. And I got into a point um, (laughs) in New York. So I, um, I had split up with my boyfriend. I had this like sublet apartment. I don't know. You've lived a little while in New York yourself, right? Yes, for a year. yeah, Yeah. So, you know, like, the drama uh, I mean it's I'm sure it's like this in the Boston area too but like the drama of finding an apartment in New York City is unlike any other drama it's the most stressful thing you know up there with like death of death and moving you know (laughs) like like, find an apartment in New York City so when you split up with somebody you um you know it's a major real estate question (laughs) (laughs) this is pretty much the number one consideration (laughs) like who has the rights who has the rights to the apartment or or you can't afford that apartment which is what it was in my case right you because you you as a couple you can afford something you can't afford it on your own so I had moved to I had gotten this and you need to move fast and I decided I'll just sublet this apartment I found on the upper west side and for six months and so my six months was coming up um and I was trying to decide whether to look for a new apartment in, back in the village where I'd been living. But I like—I had grown to like the Upper West Side. But it's very, the two are very different, you know. And I couldn't really decide between the two of them. Um, and also, my, it sounds funny, but my driver's license was coming up for renewal. <laughs> and, mm. and I already had this like horrible like saga getting my first driver's license out of New York State because my my purse had been stolen like right when I first moved to New York. So I didn't have my New Jersey license to turn in. And mm-hmm. then anyway, so I, my sister was visiting me. I was like, uh, I wasn't really loving my job at that point. It was, and I, uh, I had moved from Ferris Strauss. I went to a, a literary agency, which I really liked working with those people and everything. But um, I missed working at a publishing house. Um, and I, you know, it was like all these like, these questions were coming up and my sister said like, well, you could move to Portland and uh, you can, you know, you can set up a literary agency there. And so that's what I did. (laughs) And I didn't have to renew my license and I didn't have to find another apartment. And so it was perfect. (laughs) (laughs) She said, come to Portland where the, the, the people are all fair skinned and (laughs) driver's license are hand, are handed out like candy. (laughs) it's true when I went to the Oregon DMV it was like a a 10 minute interaction and I was done and I I don't know if it's still as bad as it used to be but it felt like something from the old Soviet Union to get something out of the DMV in New York City yeah um, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, counter counter workers in New York City who I think they had their last if they, they they had their last friendly encounter about 15 years previous to whenever you get there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh it's a wonderful city uh but I could I could relate to uh you know deciding to move on and you said you moved to when you moved to Portland that you did you uh, you did decide to establish a literary agency? Yes, I did um for a while um I had a few authors, you know, there's a lot of writers here in Oregon, and there was maybe one other literary agent at the time, and I had this experience in doing subsidiary rights as well, so I had, you know, like the foreign rights and stuff. Um, so I um, I did, 
um, take on a few clients and made some really great deals for them. But uh, I, I was burned out of literary agenting. It was really not for me. I mean, there's a limit to my sales ability. <laughs> and there's also the, a limit to my ability to be kind of tough-minded about the realities. Like, you know, authors need money. I would advance the money because I knew how they feel, you know, and or if I couldn't get a deal for somebody, I would feel too bad, you know, it would make right. me feel too bad. I would know that person, I would know what they need the money for, and it was very, very stressful, and I really finally just had to go like, you know, uh, again, you know, dri- you know, driving me crazy, <laughs> driving me crazy, right. <laughs> maybe literally. Um, so uh, my sister Judy had started a software company um, for to make arts and crafts software for children, and uh, it was, uh, um, and she let me come on and work in the Paris office of this company, and so that's how I got into software. The Paris France office, yes, I assume. yes. Okay, so you had this uh, this move across the country from New York City to Portland, and then oh, I can go <laughs> live and work in in Paris. Okay, <laughs> yeah. try that out for a while. Is that how yeah. long did that last? About four months. It was you know it wasn't intended to be um, long term, but they needed some help um, with a localization uh, project, and so that was my job to get the software localized into French and German. Well, that's very cool. Um, I I also picked up from uh, an interview I read with uh, uh, with you that you you know a side effect of learning or of spending all this time at at Princeton was that you came out of it knowing several foreign languages, and <laughs> I believe French was one of them. Yeah. Uh, so that was a, must have been helpful in in uh, your your sister's. Uh, deciding to you know employ you in that office yeah yeah it was um if you if you do a phd in russian history you're required to have french german and russian as your you know languages that you can at least you know do research in if not speak well um you know because you're in you're supposed to do primary source research um and russian is pretty obvious but french and german I'd be interested to see if that's even required still. I mean, Russian history has pretty a lot of ties with French and German history both, but um, uh, yeah, so you had to have these three languages no matter what you did in addition to being a historian. And so, but I like languages, so I, it was yeah. not really, I wouldn't say it was easy, but it's not, um, it's not a, a burden for me to uh, try to learn something new. Um, but yeah, so I did that for a few months in Paris and then I came back to Portland and worked as the, the online marketing manager, which was funny because this is 90, 96, 97. And, you know, there wasn't very much going on, going on online at that time. It was, I mean, there was stuff and people were getting websites and, but it was nothing like, you know, it became even like five years later. And so we were pretty much making it up as we went along. And uh, that's how I got into web design because the, the programmers uh, at our company, nice guys, they were like, they didn't, they were technically responsible for 
getting new web pages up <laughs> because they were the only ones who knew HTML mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, they were the only ones who knew what FTP even stood for. And uh, they, but like, you know, in hindsight, of course, I see exactly what was going on. They really f- considered that not their job. And so when I would try to update the website, they would be like, well, we can't even look at that for the next three weeks, you know? <laughs> right. And I would be like, and then they bought me um, um, homepage, uh, Clara's homepage, which was one of the first, you know, HTML um, editors, WYSIWYG type editors. Um, as, and they said, you could do it yourself, you know? And, and I'm always up for a challenge like that. So I did. And that's when I started learning web design and um, becoming a web designer and um, and I got laid off and so I, <laughs> I started to become a freelance web designer and did that for quite a while and I um, I saw on uh, on uh, I saw somewhere that you um, ended up actually being a teacher of web design at least briefly at the Pacific Northwest College of Art mm-hmm and then something that sort of relates, I think, back to your app camp for girls and endeavors is that you you did some web design teaching internationally. Um, I think it was two separate stints, mm-hmm. uh, once in Ghana and once in Armenia. That's right. So you have this, you know, you're obviously not afraid to travel for, for your work. <laughs> um, I don't know, I guess... Uh, um, I think there was some humanitarian aspect to this, though. Yes. Is that is that right? Yeah. Uh, the first uh, trip was uh, four months in uh, Ghana, in Accra, primarily, uh, which is the capital. And that was part of a program called Geek Corps, so like Peace Corps for Geeks. And the founder of that program was very inspiring, in fact, still inspiring to me, um, a guy named Ethan Zuckerman, who... Uh, he in college, I think he when he was at Williams College, he found it Tripod, um, which was one of those internet service, you know, and portals that you could. I mean, it was like MySpace and Yahoo and all those things before those things existed. Um, and he and his his partners they sold that I think for like sixty million dollars back then. And so Ethan, who had been a a Fulbright scholar himself in in Ghana wanted to do, um, you know, he would. He said, like, I know a lot of people would like to join the Peace Corps, but they have these skills that they would like to use, not as opposed to teaching English or or digging wells or whatever. Not that you know, nothing wrong with those things, but the 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 geeks wanted to bring geek geekness, you know, to the. Um, uh, underdeveloped countries, and so he started this program, um, and I was in the second cohort of that, um, and it was myself and seven guys. <laughs> <It> was, <laughs> and we lived in a big house together in Accra, and all the guys were like twenty five, twenty six, and I was forty. Um, so it was really, it was. They were great guys. We we really had a good, um, um, a good experience I think at least most of us together got along pretty well um, but it was interesting because they had accepted to the program 12 people four women and three of the women decided to 
drop out of it for whatever reason. And but you know, talking, I, I talked to a couple of them because we, were, you know, they would say like, "What do you, are you going to go?" And but and I and I think that part of it was that they felt a little intimidated or not. I don't know. They were. It was. It was funny when I realized I was going to be the only woman. I, I thought, okay, let's go for it. And it was. It was fine. I mean, those guys were fine. And and Ghana is, is a wonderful country. Um, I really really enjoyed my time there. But yeah, Ethan. Um, uh, he's now he's at the. Uh, he's at Harvard. He's he's uh, he ended up. Um, the program didn't quite grow the way he had in, originally envisioned, and it was he he ended up um, sort of uh, it being acquired by another foreign service program, and he went on to be a researcher at Harvard. And the um, and I can't remember the name of the program, but he he is now involved with something called Global Voices, and that's um, like a, a network of bloggers around the world, like in these places, you know, like Syria or Egypt or Turkey. Like they they have the connections with the people on the ground um, in a lot of these places, to making sure that these voices are heard. Um, so he's still doing great stuff, um, and. Uh, that so that that was geek core and i it was great i was i was lucky to have gotten to be on that program it sounds it sounds like it must have must have been you know if only like unconsciously must have helped inform your attitude towards i mean in a way you were doing the same kind of thing trying to spread tech culture to a group of people who were not that wasn't like the natural the most natural course in their lives right yeah no it was really interesting um we all the the way the program worked is um uh we were each assigned to a different business in accra and so we worked at that company for you know these three months that we were were there and um um these companies had to apply to get a geek and have a have a project for that geek what they wanted you know that person like what the the skills transfer that would take place and in my case um this company that i worked at they wanted to learn how to do web design and how um to they were software company um and they had a lot of clients that they could have added web design as another service that they offered for them so it wasn't like helping out non-profit or schools or anything like that. It was a very interesting approach, which was, you know, let's help these businesses because the businesses do well. That kind of knowledge will trickle down um, in other ways. But but some of the guys, you know, were teaching programming where they were, and they found it very... Uh, um, it's challenging because it was uh, a way of um, thinking that wasn't support it in the educational system you know in Ghana this kind of that you know they were hard working and they were very smart but they also they didn't had a hard time um, getting across the idea that you can't really teach someone programming like <laughs> you can teach right. them the basics but they the only way to learn it is to just do it and start doing it and there's no no list of any number of steps that will 
turn you into a, a programmer, you know. The, the, so that I think it was an interesting uh, um, cultural um, learning experience for all of us uh, to see just a, a, a different mindset. Yeah. Well, one of the things that um, is clear from your history, you know, starting when you are a young girl thinking you're going to be grow, grow up to be a school teacher like your parents and then kind of go, becoming uh you know more more oriented towards um the idea of being a professor uh, you end up doing this job where you have to go negotiate and, and and uh try to sell rights for publishing company you have all these jobs that in sort of um uh convey your willingness to get up and communicate with people um and I know, you know, we, we haven't gotten into much of this yet. Um, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the main reasons I know you at all is because of your work as a partner at Smile Software. And it strikes me that, you know, you coming into the company, um, that's what you were really bringing to the, to the company was your willingness and expertise communicating with people. Um, do you think we need to have a communication camp for grown men? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I don't know, communication camp exactly, but like everything else, I feel um, that there, you know, I think I talked about this some at Alt um, WWDC, this feeling that um, people might have this idea about marketing and it, that it's something that they can't do or it's something that'll be hard for them to do, but they just have to make themselves do it. Um, and it's, it doesn't have to be like that. You know? <laughs> it, I mean, I, I learned that myself, you know, that I didn't know that I would ever be in a marketing department of anything, but um, that it is more about... Um, wanting to connect with other people and um, learn about their interests and, and find out where your interests um, align. And, and that's, uh, I mean, in, in, in New York, I was, I had the reputation that I never tried to BS people. <laughs> if a book was not good, I wouldn't say it was good. You know, I would try not to say it was bad, but <laughs> I would not, I would, you know, I would say this is not my cup of tea or, you know, I could say like, I can imagine this book will sell. And in fact, there's, there were some bestsellers that I said would not sell and I was wrong. <laughs> so, so I don't know why, you know, anybody listens to me because I, t- I can point to like some very obvious things that I thought would never work. Um, uh, like eBay, for example. Um, but uh, <laughs> who wants to who wants to buy used stuff, stuff from, from strangers? other strangers? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember getting started and thinking that sounds terrible. Now, my sister, one of my sisters, works for eBay. But, <laughs> Funny. Um, yeah, so I think that um, that it only that works the best when it's an it's an extension of your own interests and your own self. I mean, that's true for like starting a. A software company if you you know work on a program that you're interested in you're just going to um it, you're just going to be more committed and you're, you're going to enjoy it more you'll probably end up with a better result um if you if you like the audience that you're trying to reach that's important you know if you 
I, I do see people who have this kind of attitude about their potential customers that I would say doesn't, um, you know, to, to uh, you know, they they look down on them a bit and they maybe like feel superior, um, and then they wonder why people don't really engage with them <laughs> because right. people know when they're being talked down to. Um, everybody knows it, and so I think you have to at least try to get you know on a level playing field with the people you're trying to reach and and understand where they're coming from and don't assume that what you think is important is what they should think is important like you know they shouldn't do anything they're just who they are <laughs> that's you just so yeah i think I think we could do a camp I'd love to do that actually that would be a cool camp i have no time to start any new camps but <laughs> I mean, I'll, just, I'll put it on your long list of uh things to do when you run out of projects yeah <laughs> um well you know uh of all the communication things of all the you know willingness to get up and talk to a crowd and teach to a crowd and and market to a crowd the one thing we haven't really touched on is that you and i have had you know the the um We've had the fun opportunity a few times to participate in another kind of crowd uh, communication in the form of karaoke singing. Yes. And, <laughs> um, you know, I have to admit, I, you know, as you know, I, I will I will go along with it. I'll get up and do it. I'm still kind of terrified when I do it. Um, you seem like you kind of have some practice with it. Like you've... You've you've put in more hours, I think, with with karaoke. Uh, I'm sure I have. <laughs> and how far back does this interest in karaoke go for you? Is this something you started in Portland, or does it go back to uh, younger younger years? I don't know. You know, I I remember the first time I got up and sang karaoke, and it was like 2001, and I it hadn't appealed to me, but for some weird reason, my brother got into it, and he's like, if you knew him, he's he's quite sort of the quiet not introverted but not he's not a showboater in any any way unlike his sisters and so <laughs> he but he, i guess i don't know anyway i did i i didn't make it into um much of a big thing until i went to rock camp and then then it became like an extension of rock camp and like ladies rock campers we go we have karaoke nights together and then kelly and i have organized a couple of geek karaoke nights here in portland um where basically only kelly and i sing but we have (laughs) a big crowd of enthusiastic supporters no that's not true that's not true there's some great karaoke singers in the portland geek community and uh um i mean of the guys and it's a lot of fun to uh to go out with them and um yeah you know i took voice lessons vocal um, one year at rock, ladies rock camp, I decided I would do um, vocals. Like you pick a, an instrument um, when you go drums, guitar, bass, vocals. Sometimes keyboards are available, but I had never done vocals, and I realized that I was afraid of doing it. You know, like standing in front of people singing. You know, and not having an instrument, and um, so I you know, realize I should just do it, you know. (laughs) I've seen plenty of other women do it, and not every one of them is like, you know, an amazing song, you know, uh, stylist, diva, singer, and people, so in prep for it, 
one thing I learned from rock camp the first time is you don't want to go into it if you can avoid it with zero practice because you work so hard. And like if you're a guitarist, your fingers are going to be shredded, you know, after day one. Um, and I figured for, vo- you know, your vocal cords would also, um, it would be rough on them. So I took some voice lessons in advance of rock camp. And that was really helpful. And that helps me, I think, in karaoke, too, because um, I learned from my awesome voice instructor. Uh, she (laughs) She says it's all about the attitude, you know. And I never thought of it that way before. And and I can see, I mean, obviously, it's good to improve your skills. And there is a lot of skill involved in, in really being a good singer. And I don't practice enough to really uh, be, be good at the singing part of it. But I do know that um, it's more than just singing. It's <laughs> so, but I think you know that too. <laughs> yeah, well, I have a hunch. Um, you know, looking back at the stuff we've talked about uh, so far on the show, and we should probably wrap up pretty soon, but, um, you know, I get the strong sense that over the course of your life and your career, you have been um, really, imp- I think, impressively exposing yourself to new challenges um, academically, culturally, socially, but also peppering in these um, these kind of you know selfless sometimes uh humanitarian on on a global level sometimes just sort of i want to try to you know pitch in and help the girls in my town who aren't getting exposed to programming um and you know things like your decision to go to big nerd ranch was an example of you sort of challenging and 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 taking on something maybe you know the way you describe it maybe maybe on paper something too big too big of a challenge really for for <laughs> you but you made it through it and um you are are better off for it. Is, it i know you're very focused right now being being as seeing as how um you know app camp for girls has just completed its week-long beta test so to speak uh in portland i think you're gearing up for another test in august yes that's right and, and Probably because of all this stuff, um, you know, and not to mention the fact that you're taking taking time off from your um, your duties at Smile Software. Um, but is there something else looming on the horizon for you that's that's like the next <laughs> the next voice lessons, the next big nerd ranch, the next you know what what is Jean McDonald going to do for herself next? <laughs> um. Well, I've got a big trip planned in in this in February to go to New Zealand, which has been on my list even before there was the term bucket list. <laughs> um, and um, I made some friends in, um, in, who are from Wellington uh, last year when I was on a Mech Mania cruise uh, in Australia, and I decided I'm going to go to to. New Zealand for a couple of weeks. Um, I'm actually going to be there during Webstock. <laughs> so, oh, cool! Yeah. I, that will be interesting. Like, I hope I, 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 my plan is to to attend that. And um, uh, but I also have a, a 11 days hiking and kayaking um, tour of the South Island of New Zealand 
planned and that's something yeah that's a big challenge right there that's an incentive to not get not sit in front of the computer you know 24 7 when you know you're going on a trip that requires you to hike and kayak for um for a week and a half right well so you've got this thing uh set on the calendar so you can look forward to that and look forward to the challenges and new thrills that come with that but it's um sort of something set apart in time like you you don't have to um you don't have to worry about it really robbing you or attention from the stuff you're focused on right now. No, um, no. I mean, I'm glad I got it all set up before the app camp craziness really set in because I wouldn't have been able to, I mean, it does take some time to plan um, that kind of a trip and figure out all the logistics of when and the flights and all right. that. But anyway, that's all pretty much nailed down. Um but yeah, I'm just enjoying. I mean, App Camp has just gotten started, and it is definitely going on beyond Portland. Um, everybody has been so supportive of it um, and and interested. Pretty much everywhere um, I've heard from, people are like, "When are you going to do this in, you know, my town, Detroit, Chicago, Seattle, New York, <laughs> Boston, right. uh, Texas?" Um, and, and we want to, we want to, that's our goal is to, to bring the program, you know, as far as we can bring it. Um, Rock Camp certainly has, um, uh, been able to do that. Um, there's over 30 rock and roll camp for girls around the world. Um, that, and that's just from something that started in Portland. So we know it's doable, um, we probably have a different model than Rock Camp is a little bit more um, decentralized. And um, I think it works for Rock because Rock is not as precision-oriented as programming. <laughs> so <laughs> there's pretty, you know, there's a certain amount of this must happen this way for, for a program to run on an, app, on an iPhone. <laughs> right. Whereas there's pretty much no no restrictions on what a rock band can do and, and, and perform. So, um, yeah, so we're working on a plan, uh, or we'll be more focused on the plan once we get through this summer, but, um, of, of how, what that would look like, how app camp for girls can be in many other cities and hopefully other countries. And soon as possible, there's such a big demand for this. Um, I'm just getting every day, you know, uh, there's a form on our site for parents to fill out if they want us to consider their daughters for just the few spots that we have. And we have four or five times the number of um, kids interested than spots we can, you know, do logistically this summer. And and it kind of kills me because I'm like, "Ah, I wish we could do more um, right away, but... Um, yeah, well, it's know, like a one. It's like a. One, it's like any 1.0 release. There yes. are a lot of um, <laughs> ideas that you have when you envision the long term yeah. product. Um, but you know, the site is is really it's really a, a cute site. It's um, got this great camp theme. This mm-hmm. cute little owl. Uh, it's very inviting, folks. If if you're interested in what Gene is working on, you should go to App Camp Four Girls, the numeral four um, dot com. And it so happens that, um, you know, you've been running this fundraising drive um, 
through Indiegogo. And uh, I know when we when we met up at WWDC, you were very excited because you had met the goal. I think at WWDC of um, or had you? I don't know if you no, had, had, but you were <laughs> you were on your way, and you have met the original goal now of um, fifty thousand dollars. But um, as you sort of alluded to, the sky is the limit for what you can achieve if you you know the funding is going to go to basically making this that much more uh, viable and ultimately leading to um, growing it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if, if um, I guess if parents out there who have girls especially are interested in this, probably sign up with your interest and consider joining in on the, um, on the donations because uh, this has momentum. So congratulations for the, um, the fundraising momentum you have so far. Thanks. It looks like this is really the, in the wake of your successful beta test. <laughs> um, seems like, you know, it, the evidence is there. This isn't some, uh, this isn't some like, uh, you know, effort that didn't make it to yeah. fruition. No, um, it's a real thing. And I mean, one of the things I, I said on Twitter is like, you know how I know that we succeeded this week is because at the very end of the um, program, the girls had what we called a pitch session where they pitched their apps to a panel of women investors. And uh, so it was kind of like a recital, you know, the equivalent of a recital at music camp. And then they got gifts. Um, my sister made them some really cool gift bags. But the other thing that they got was a copy of Objective-C programming from Big Nerd Ranch. <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah. And when I said, you're going to get this book, Objective-C programming, they went like, yay! <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. They were like, because they knew at that point, they knew that that was their next step. If they were going to seriously do app development, they'd seen the code, they'd seen Xcode, they knew a little bit from, you know, just working with it. And and I and I told him I said every one of you is capable of finishing this book if you if you want to. I I, I did it. I didn't you know. And you you can do it too. I've seen what you guys can do. And so wouldn't that be cool if they? In fact, we're already talking about having like a a, a meetup you know for the girls like who want to work on Objective C and we can you know have a work working group. Um, so to keep thing, that going, you know, to so keep that as, that aspect of it going. But it was, it is, it's it it's something. It's clearly, it's more than just an idea of mine. I mean, maybe I had a way of putting it together because of the various things that I've done and experienced. But um, it, it, there's so many people who have engaged and you know bought into the the project now, and plus, you know, so many people have donated um, their money to help support us and uh so it's um it is quite exciting and we i, I mean we 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 do want to we we targeted a hundred thousand dollars now uh as our our stretch goal and that's money that we can use to buy the ipod touches and the macs you know we need computers too <laughs> so, right um that uh we can seed the other cities with because that's a pretty big upfront cost um, and it's the kind of cost that looks very out of proportion to like what you're doing, you know, that why should camp cost right. six to $10,000, you know, before you've done anything. But once you, you need the equipment, like 
data can't prove that to me, that we were right about the iPod touches and that we need more Macs. Um, we have the money now. We're going to buy um, the Macs that we need for uh, we borrowed some Macs this, for this Vedic mm-hmm. session, and that worked okay. But, it, it, you know, all of these things need to be owned by the camp. We can't just borrow them or get loaners or get old equipment. It's got to be the newest equipment, more or less, if you want to teach development. Yeah. And it's got to be equipment that we can set up and provision and everything working together, you know, for for camp to work so so it's a big it's a it's a big expense but you know we are apple enthusiasts so we are not um we are not strangers to the notion that you have to pay some money up front (laughs) to get a quality result (laughs) absolutely well i'm really happy to see how you know at least hopefully the funding fundraising will continue to succeed but at least it has met your expectations um that you had originally. Yes. Um, so folks, once again, appcamp4girls.com and the four is the numeral four. Um, if folks want to keep in touch with, uh, with Eugene, uh, you're on Twitter at Mac genie, uh, genie, like, uh, would come out of a lamp, M A C G E N I E. And of course, uh, when you're not running nonprofit, uh, app camps for girls, you are, a partner at smilesoftware.com, makers of uh, great software for the Mac, including text expander, PDF pin, uh, and other stuff. Um, is there other? Is there anything else uh, that's a good good place to keep up with you online? Um, well, I think uh, um, LinkedIn is is a good place, you know, to just be connected. Um, as you found out, it's a big. A treasure trove of trivia right. about me. <laughs> but my, arsenal, I, <laughs> my arsenal of secret facts about Jean McDonald. I'm like thinking, when did I get, when did we become friends on LinkedIn? <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I think that I like LinkedIn just for that kind of like, you don't want to read my tweets. You just want to know where I am and, and you have a way to get in touch with me. Um, I think it serves a good purpose that way. Um, and App Camp for Girls also has a Facebook page, um, and that's, that's um, pretty easy to find on Facebook. So, um, and, and on the website, if you sign up for our newsletter, that's like the best way to like be in the loop of like when we announce new cities and new registrations and things like that. So, cool. All right. Well, Jean, it has been really fun talking to you. I learned a lot about you, um, and I know I only scratched the surface, but thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Now I'm going to have to start a podcast of my own and turn the tables. Absolutely. I would look forward to that. Thanks again. This has been Bit Splitting with Daniel Jalkett and Jean McDonald. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review or rating in the iTunes podcast directory. You can find links and other show notes at the podcast homepage, bitsplitting.org slash podcast. Thank you for listening.